Thanks for joining me, Pete Holtzman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Matt Humphrey, Director of Racing Communications for NASCAR. The green flag will get dropped on the new NASCAR season this weekend with its most famous race, the Daytona 500. From his spot in the infield of the track, Matt will experience a thrill as the race gets underway that keeps him coming back. There is nothing that beats the sensory experience of being in a NASCAR race. It's not just the sound. The sound is part of it. It rumbles into your chest. You feel it. You hear it. You smell it. There's just, I mean, it it overloads the senses and it it makes every hair stand on end. With more than 40 cars going hundreds of miles an hour around a two and a half mile tri-oval, it takes a team to provide the communication support at a NASCAR race. What helps is that I work with some best-in-class professionals. I mean, the, the amount of talent that we have on our team uh, really helps make my jobs so much easier because they, you know, not only am I in tune with the sport, they're also in tune with the sport, and we're all passionate about the sport. Traveling at such high speeds, especially when racing so closely, brings an element of danger to each race. Matt and his team understand they need to be very well prepared in case a serious accident takes place. And it's something we train for every week during the season and even during the offseason where we refine our procedures and, and go into the race weekend knowing exactly what we would do in the event of A, B, and C as far as safety is concerned on the track. Matt shares a lot of insights in this episode about not only his fellow PR pros, but also the journalists who cover NASCAR and the drivers who get behind the wheel each week. He also discusses many of the topics that have kept NASCAR in the news lately, including how quickly the sport returned to action in 2020, the infusion of celebrity ownership, and the reimagined 2021 racing schedule. I've been telling folks for for the last few years, as, as I've seen, as I've seen the changes develop, is that NASCAR is really on the threshold of a new golden age. A reminder, there are show notes on credentialsonly.com with more information about many of the things we will discuss in this episode. And while you're on the website, please sign up for our mailing list to get notified whenever we have a new episode to share. And if you've not already done so, please take a moment to leave a rating and review wherever you are listening. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Matt Humphrey. Director of Racing Communications at NASCAR. Matt, thanks so much for joining me. I want to go back a little bit in time to, say, 2019. You know, when things were normal, if you can remember back when normal was a thing. On a typical race day, how many PR professionals are usually at a track for a NASCAR race? Well, for the sanctioning body itself, you generally had five to six at the racetrack. Uh, And then in in addition, each one of the drivers, so you'd have 40 drivers in the field, most of those drivers would have a communications professional with them, uh, either through their race team or as a, you know, through a personal services contract. So, yeah, you would have, you would have quite a few um, uh, working in the garage and in the media center week in and week out. And on top of that, I know some of the tracks have their own PR staff. Some of the sponsors probably bring their own Correct. People. So it's a, yes. it's a mini PRSA convention right there at a track every weekend. You know, the, the, the amount of experience, I mean, and, and the folks who work in, in, in auto racing have been around for a while. And so folks, uh, I, I started out covering the sport um, and there are many people who are working in the communications ranks for different teams, manufacturers, sponsors, 
who were, who were around back then, they may have been working with different people, but you know, I worked with them just the same. They helped me out do my job as a sports writer. So, uh, you know, but it's, it's a sport that, uh, it, you know, it's a family atmosphere. And so, you know, people, once they get into the sport, very, they don't, they don't leave that often. So that, that's good. It's good to have that wealth of knowledge around to draw from at the racetrack week in and week out. So as one of the NASCAR PR people there, as you said, five or six of you at each race, what's the level of coordination as you start to get out to all these different PR people? Cause ultimately your stories are intertwined that tire manufacturer if there's an issue with tires, they're going to be front and center or someone with a particular driver or a team. How do you guys work between all these other separate entities? Well, it's a, you know, it's, it's a real, real, it was a complex ballet uh, because you have so many different stakeholders involved, but uh, generally we would have somebody up in race control who would, who would be monitoring the, you know, the, the lap by lap competition and, and would, quarterback the effort on the ground. And so we, you'd have somebody inside the media center then who would work and help relay the message. If there was any key messaging that needed to be uh, relayed on the spot, they would, you know, send it out via email and also, you know, face-to-face hand-to-hand, uh, you know, conversation in, in the moment. And that was, it was key uh, just to have that kind of interaction. But yeah, they, you interacted on so many different levels, uh, text messages, uh, as you all know, uh, are, uh, you know, they turned out to be a very quick and effective way, uh, to get your message out quickly at the racetrack as well. So if you had, if you had uh, a something arise. Okay. So let's kind of look at a, a typical race week for you. Uh, when are you, let's say the race is Sunday afternoon. When are you getting into town, uh, and, and your other NASCAR team members that half dozen of NASCAR folks? Sure. So like pre-COVID and this would have been, and even, even last year, so it's like 2020, those numbers were lowered significantly. So we'd have like four people at the racetrack. Uh, but even so in pre-COVID, we would generally arrive in market on Thursday. Um, most on, for a, for a Sunday race on track activity would begin on Friday you would ha- likely have practice and then Bush Pullaward qualifying. And then you would also have uh, maybe a Camping World Truck Series race uh, supporting the event. And then on Saturday, you would have more NASCAR Cup Series practice. You'd have the NASCAR Xfinity Series race. And then Sunday, you, ha- you would have the big show, the NASCAR Cup Series race, our, our, our premier series. And, and so, and then we would, we'd run the race, hold our press conferences, put out our notes, post to the website, and then we would leave um, on Monday morning, head back to either the Daytona office or the Charlotte office uh, or New York, Concord, depending on where, where you were located from. So for you personally, are you involved with all those different series that are happening at a given track, or are you simply wor- working on the cup race? No, I you know. Personally, I touched them all. Um, and in fact, we're, we are so, we're so matrixed to, as an organization right now that anything that's related under the NASCAR banner as a communication staff, uh, we touch on my particular role, uh, in addition to supporting the three national series, the NASCAR Cup Series, the NASCAR Xfinity Series, and the NASCAR Camping World Truck Series, I also provide strategic support to uh, IMSA, which is our sports car sanctioning body, which is a NASCAR property. Also, uh, the Arca Menard series, which is uh, the top regional uh, 
stock car racing series uh, in the United States, which also falls under the NASCAR banner. And also we have our, our weekly and touring uh, series like the Advanced Auto Parts Weekly Series, which uh, sanctioned weeknight ra well, weekly racing at local tracks from coast to coast. So I, I play a role in all of those functions. And, and so, and then, then we also have our, we ask, we have our racetracks. We have 16 different, you know, major motorsports facilities under the NASCAR umbrella. And then, you know, our staff, uh, we all help provide communication support to those facilities as well. So you're listing off all these series from the cup all the way down to ARCA mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I'm sitting here doing the math in my head. We're up to hundreds of drivers. How are you Absolutely. keeping all of these data points straight in your head to be able to converse fluently from the Menard series to, uh, you know, Xfinity? Well, it's, it, it, you have to pay attention. So it's, you know, it, and what, what's, what helps is that I work with some best in class professionals. I mean, the, the amount of talent that we have on our team, uh, really helps make my job so much easier because they, you know, not only am I in tune with the sport, they're also in tune with the sport and we're all passionate about the sport. And so we're following. So even if we're not, say if it's a weekend off and we're not at the racetrack, we're all, we're, we're, we're tuning in to watch the truck series race, to watch the Xfinity race, to watch the ARCA race. Uh, and, and so we know, we know what, what, what the storylines are and what's happening uh, on the racetrack and off the racetrack. So it's, you know, being that, you know, being that we're very passionate about what we do and about the product, uh, it, it's, it's not as difficult to keep track of it as you may think. So when you're at the track, you guys, it's kind of unique what you have, because you have really one of the largest playing areas of any sport. You know, some of these are up to two and a half mile ovals and a lot of terrain to cover. How do you guys divide and conquer keeping tabs on everything from what's happening in that one pit stall to something that's happening on the backstretch. Sure. So it, it is, it's a lot of coordination. So it starts with, it starts with uh, the person in race control is who is monitoring, monitoring the on-track on activity uh, from, from the tower. And then we're all connected via radio. So we're listening, we're all listening to the race director uh, who is, who, who will let us know if there's an issue uh, in on pit road or in, in the turns. And so, that's the person who will call out the caution. So if there, if there's a, let's just say, uh, let's Kyle Larson would spin out and turn four, and then the, the race director would, would, would say, put it out. And so the, the starter in the stand would put out the yellow flag, cars would slow down. And then we're hearing this conversation between the race, uh, the race director, all the, all the safety equipment on the racetrack and, and the officials on pit road. So we kind of know, where the action is and where we need to, where we need to put our focus. Okay. So when that happens, what's your, first of all, where are you during this race? If you're not up in race control and then what is your sure. next action step when you hear that, that yellow yeah. is out. So then, uh, I would, if I would, if I'm not in race control, I'd be in the media center. And so if the caution comes out, then, uh, if the car doesn't continue, then the driver has to take a mandatory trip to the infield care center. And if you've watched a NASCAR race, some of the most insightful and emotional interviews that you'll see from our drivers take place outside of the infield care center after they've been evaluated and released uh, following an, a medical investigation, um, medical evaluation. So uh, 
then my role would pivot then to the Enfield Care Center where I would help uh, our broadcast partners and our media on site conduct interviews with that driver who, had, uh, who was discharged from the Enfield Care Center. So it's a, yeah, it is, it's, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty fluid situation. There is an element of danger to your sport that is unique. Um, mm -hmm. We don't see it in every sport. And there are times when there are some very serious accidents that do take place at the track where sometimes that driver can't get treated and released immediately after the evaluation. They may have to go on to a hospital. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that those are challenging days, but I would think you guys probably have some pretty intense protocols that are in place. So you guys know exactly what the playbook's going to be when that happens. Is that an accurate uh, assumption? Absolutely. And it's something we train for every week during the season and even during the off season where we refine our procedures and, and go into the race weekend knowing exactly what we would do in the event of A, B, and C uh, as far as safety is concerned on the track. And so, you know, heading into the race weekend, we'll gather, we'll gather together, not only the communication staff, but everybody that's associated with, uh, with the event, uh, that weekend from, from, a, from a NASCAR side and from a racetrack perspective, we'll, we will gather together and we'll run through our safety communications procedures. Uh, and then we'll, and then we'll go through the procedures that we would follow uh, should a driver be transported to the hospital. And so we go over it so many times that as soon as something happens, then, then the switch flips and then everybody's on point. They know what to do. And, and, and it helps us uh, maintain a calm presence then to help, you know, help provide accurate and timely information uh, to, to our executives, to the media, and ultimately to our fans. And there are instances where you wind up then at the hospital with these teams and what's got to be a very emotionally charged situation. Mm -hmm. Is it an opportunity though to be someone because you've rehearsed it, you're, you have to be that calming presence and, and be that professional, but also can be kind of helpful to be that familiar face when they're walking into a hospital where they might not know anybody. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it, you know, it's something where, you know, you help you, you're, you're, you're there as a, as a counsel. So you, you, you're, you're counseling, uh, you're counseling, you know, members of the race team who, who've arrived at the facility, you, you, executives, uh, family members, and you're, you're helping provide, you, you're really being a conduit to help provide them the latest information possible and to help them communicate out the message uh, that they want to communicate. Uh, and, you know, there's so much, you, you know, that we're restricted uh, with, with by HIPAA. I mean, the, the HIPAA regulations you know, limit what you can do. And so we're, you know, we're there to provide a constant reminder to, to folks that, you know, Ultimately, you know, it's the driver's information and that, that, that you're dealing with. And so um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a key part of it is being a voice of calm and a, and a familiar face. And then you're just, you, you know, you're just staying calm and gathering people together, uh, making connections. And, uh, and then, and then and as we all, we pray for a great outcome. You're with the drivers in a lot of other situations in the teams mm -hmm. as well, including Victory Lane. 
what's the process like for someone when they win, especially if it's something they haven't won before, or they've won now at a, a higher level than they've previously won before. What's the, I hate to use the phrase car wash for mm-hmm. a racing series, but you know, that circuit of interviews that someone has to go through if they do finish you know, even a podium finish second or third. Well, we'll start with race winners. I love, I love dealing with the winners in victory lane and well, you know, coming up the Daytona, the six, <laughs> yeah, you know, the Daytona 500, the Daytona 500 winner will, will do, you know, upwards of four to four and a half hours of media, uh, at the end of the race. So they'll, 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 you know, they get out of the car, they celebrate in victory lane, the confetti is flying, everybody's going crazy. They're getting, they're getting pelted with beer and Gatorade and all sorts of of fluids that are flying around through various bottles. And, uh, and then, and then the, uh, the live, the live TV broadcast partner will come and get that that on the spot interview. And then our, our radio partner, MRN will come in and get their interview. They'll, they'll, you know, we'll back away the driver will receive the trophy, take some photos with family, with his or her teammates. And then, uh, and then we start the car wash with local media in victory lane. We'll have a, we'll have a, uh, a gaggle of local media in victory lane and then one-on-one interviews. So let's say sports centers on site. So we'll set up, we'll set up a talk back with, with Bristol uh, from victory lane. And then we'll do talk backs with our broadcast partners, FS1 and NBC and then one-on-ones with other other broadcast outlets that are on site. And then once that's all said and done, we'll pull the driver away. We'll take him by golf cart to the media center where they'll probably spend anywhere between 30 to 45 minutes uh, talking to the deadline media uh, in the media center. They'll hold a press conference. And then once that press conference is complete, they likely will have more sit-down interviews. So it could be Sunday conversation with ESPN. They, um, uh, NASCAR Productions will sit down and gather content that they can use to promote throughout the year. Uh, and then the broadcast partners sometimes will like to also have that sit-down, that, 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 you know, that, that two-camera shot that, that allows them to, to tell the, the deeper story of, of the race. And so, yeah, it's, it, it, it is a, it's a lot of work for the driver, but if you win the Daytona 500, guess what? You're not complaining about it too much. Uh, uh, they, they're, they're pretty happy to be able to uh, talk about winning the great American race. In second and third, we, I want to touch on that, but even, mm-hmm. you know, there could be, especially in a race like Daytona, someone could be right at the front of the pack and wind up finishing 10th or 12th and, mm-hmm. Second or third, they have a place they need to go. But if they're 10th or 12th, do you end up chasing guys who are trying to just get on the hauler and get out of town? Well, pre-pandemic, uh, we, set up a, we set up a system where uh, at the end of the race, we would set up a bullpen on pit road. And so the top 10, uh, the drivers who finished second through 10th, plus any other additional storyline drivers. So let's just let's take that example. Uh, if a driver was you know, leading the Daytona 500 heading into the last lap, but ended up getting washed out in the draft and finishing 12th, but was still a key storyline that we will stop them on pit road and then we will bring them down. And so we'll have members of, of the communications team. We'll, we'll walk up and down pit road and we'll bring everybody down to the bullpen. And then we'll have our, our core media uh, will we'll be stationed inside that bullpen and the drivers, they'll spend 10 to 15 minutes there at the bullpen and, and answer questions. 
And then you mentioned earlier that your day isn't done. You mm -hmm. then are going and, and cranking out notes on these guys. What mm -hmm. are some of the notes that you're putting together after a race about drivers? Well, personally, on my, from, from my end, most of the notes are for executive prep prep documents. And so we'll have prep executives for, for interviews leading into the next day. But, uh, you know, we are, our, our, our team at NASCAR.com, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be cranking out materials. We have the NASCAR wire service that will, uh, that will be cranking out content that will be distributed to websites and newspapers from coast to coast. Uh, we put together video news releases that we send out to local uh, local broadcast media across the country uh, that includes, you know, highlights and, uh, and sound bites uh, from the day's events. And so there, there's a lot that goes on once that's all said and done. So if you get to the track on Thursday and the mm -hmm. race is Sunday, how much time from that arrival Thursday till takeoff really Monday morning are you spending at the track? Most of it. Uh, there will be times like on, on a Friday, I mean, depending on the day and the schedule and the number of series that you have on track, you could conceivably be at the track anywhere between, you know, 12 to 16 hours, depending on, depending on the day. Uh, post COVID uh, we've, we've eliminated most practice and qualifying. And so our time at the racetrack is actually much shorter, but before the pandemic, it was, a, it was definitely, uh, it was definitely a day long investment at the racetrack and, uh, uh but you're always hopping, that's for sure. How do you pass the time during a rain delay? Oh my goodness! Well, let's just say you look <laughs> at you look at Twitter, and everybody on Twitter becomes a staff meteorologist. And so, uh, uh, yeah, our media we we have great media that that cover our sport. And uh, you know, one of our one, one of our top beat writers, Bob Pockers of Fox Sports, will always tweet out pictures of the radar. And, or, or gifts of the radar, the latest radar. And so, uh, it, you know, you're always following along with the latest radar is saying, but uh, at, at the same time, um, if you're up in race control, you're also, you know, you're working with, uh, you know, our, our senior competition of, uh, officials, our broadcast liaisons, our broadcast partners, and trying to determine, okay, what's the schedule going to be and how are we going to communicate this out? Um, and, Boy, I tell you what, they, they, it can be a slog. We, I was I was fortunate that I was not in, at Texas uh, in the fall last year, but uh, yeah. we we had multiple rainouts, and it, you know, but that is that is uh, it's not it's certainly not fun. But uh, you know, when you're a sport that competes outdoors, uh, you're gonna ha you're gonna have that from time to time. You never want to go to a track and see the safety vehicles being the ones going around trying to dry that track off. That's certainly not what you bought a ticket for, but it happens uh, it, from time yeah. to time. It, it happens, and also it turns into a high-calorie day. So, I mean, you know, if there's <laughs> nothing going on in the track, you're looking, okay, where are the snacks? I mean, I, <laughs> I need some carbohydrates. <laughs> and so and so we have a joke that, the, you know, depending on the length of the, of the rain delay, it could be a 3,000-calorie rain delay, a 5,000-calorie rain delay. You just never know. You mentioned the PR people and you're crossing paths with people now who are still working in, in the sport who you knew when you were a journalist. Mm -hmm. I suspect there are a number of journalists who are still covering the sport into their third, fourth decade of being around NASCAR. What's it like to have a media core that 
is that invested and has so much institutional knowledge and history of the sport? Well, it's, you know, if you're, if you're involved in NASCAR, you have a passion for the sport. You, You know, your journalists are covering us objectively, but at the end of the day, they enjoy and understand stock car racing and auto racing and NASCAR in general. And so they, they have, they have an understanding and appreciation of, of the, of the cars, of the competitors, of the traditions, of the, just the, the excitement uh, that our fans, we have, we have, you know, rabid fans who just cannot get enough of our sport. And so they, 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 they get it. And so they're, they're able then to take all of those inputs and then produce, you know, compelling stories week in and week out that, that help feed a hungry fan base that can't get enough content. Conversely, you're going into markets where you're not necessarily going to get someone who covers the sport week in, week out. And I thought it was interesting that you said you make a point in the winner's circle to get the winners to do a little local media gaggle. That local component is huge for the ticket buyers and for the tracks and everything. How do you weave them into that tapestry of media access, not just in that post-race gaggle, but also in the lead up as you're trying to get those tickets sold in the weeks before a race? Well, it starts, it starts long before we get to the racetrack. I mean, you're looking anywhere between, you know, you know, six to eight weeks out that, you know, folks from our team will be in contact with the, with the local media. And I mean, our, 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 our communications professionals at our racetracks are holding continual conversations with, uh, with the local media and, and making sure that they have the latest storylines uh, and then access. And, you know, I, I, I love, I love just talking to, to new media and local media and in these local markets. And, and we'll just, t- we'll talk about the latest and greatest storylines because they may not have seen last week's race at Martinsville. And so they may not know, they may not know that, uh, you know, you know, that Brad Kozlowski is on a tear or that Chase Elliott may be struggling or the, you know, and they, they may not know that, you know, Bubba Wallace is, is, you know, racing with a new team this year. And so, um, you know, so you're wanting, you know, you're, you're not only holding those conversations, but you're providing them with, uh, you know, the connections to get the interviews that they need to help tell the story before the, before the drivers and the teams get in the market and, and making sure they have all those assets at their disposal. And so that's, it's a key component to what we do it's, it's really at our very core is that local media outreach. And it's something that we take, we take very seriously. And it's something we really enjoy too, because you get, you get to, you get to know uh, a lot of good people. And plus they know they, those are the folks that know the good restaurants to eat when you get in the town. So you got to make sure that you take care of them and, and, and they'll, they'll, they'll take care of you. Very, very savvy veteran move there. Um, what are the drivers like in terms of how they approach the media and with you, your role, you're usually the one getting them to go do that media. How do they handle those obligations that they have? You know, it depends on, it, it depends on the day. I mean, people, you know, people are people and, and our drivers, our drivers are human beings. Some have good days, some have bad days. Uh, you know, if they're winning, if drivers are winning, they're they they're very eager to get in front of the media. If they're struggling on the racetrack, and and you know, look, we we race thirty eight weekends a year, and 
that, you know, you're not always going to be on top of your game. So if you're struggling during a given stretch, then, then you, you may not be as eager to uh, stop by a, a, a bullpen uh, to, to meet with a, with a gaggle of reporters or hop on a zoom call with uh, like we have been doing during the pandemic. Uh, and so it, 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 it just varies, but you know, you know, by and large, and I would say, I would say almost to, to a driver, they all, they all get it. They all get the importance of the media and the importance of, of having the media tell their story and the power that the media has to tell their story and to, to deliver value to not only, not only the NASCAR, but also their brand. And so, uh, but yeah, it's, it is, it is, it, it, it can be, it, you know, it can be challenging at times, but you know, they, it's, it's also very rewarding. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's how it goes. There are probably some drivers who kind of work their way up stepping stone through different series, the opportunity to be at these major tracks with the cup series or what we see with the Xfinity mm -hmm. series, with the same journalists who are going to cover them at the ultimate level with the same media relations team that's going to work with them. Does that help? and kind of groom them when they're younger drivers and, and up and coming to experience it and see it and develop those relationships that will be with them through the long haul. Absolutely. And you look at the multi-generational drivers that we have in our sport. I mean, Dale Earnhardt Jr., he's retired now and in the broadcast booth, but I mean, Dale Earnhardt Jr. grew up at a racetrack. Uh, you know, Kyle Petty retired. He grew up at a racetrack. A driver today uh, that is really germane to this conversation be a, a guy like Harrison Burton. Harrison Burton is the son of Jeff Burton. When I first started at NASCAR in 2011, this kid held a press conference. And literally when I, was, I say he was a kid, I don't think he was 11 at the time, but he was, he was racing, I think legends cars at Atlanta motor speedway. And he came in and held a press conference. And I'm sitting back there and his dad is a great talker, a great interview, but I'm sitting back there. And this kid was a professional. I mean, he's sitting there answering questions kind of joking playfully with the media and just talking up a storm. And I said, boy, this is, but, but then again, as he comes up through the ranks and he's going, he's, he's, he's moved up the ladder into the NASCAR Xfinity series now, which is, is the tier below the NASCAR cup series. And, and you can see how it's paid off. It's been fun to watch him mature. And it's been fun to watch other drivers who've taken that path. Uh, you know, like a Brad Keselowski, uh, who's, you know, his dad raced in ARCA, and in the, in the NASCAR Camping World Truck Series back in the day. And so he, he's another kid who's grown up at the racetrack. And to watch his progression, both as a driver, but also as somebody who interacts with the media, he's, he's, he's very savvy. He takes, he, he, he takes it upon himself to learn everybody's name. And so if somebody asks him a question in, in a press conference, he always, he always answers by responding with their name. It's a, it's, a, it's a great move. But again, that's just, you can tell he's somebody who appreciates um, the, uh, the hard work it's taken to get to this level. The teams are independent, you know, NASCAR is the governing body. So the teams mm -hmm. are independent and the drivers work within these teams. So there's occasionally some animosity, whether it's between teams or even uh, drivers or towards NASCAR, which probably puts you in an awkward spot from time to time. How do you navigate those situations? Well, I think the key key is to know is to have broad shoulders and, and know that the darts are going to fly from all directions when you're the sanctioning body. 
you know, nobody likes the referee, right? So, <laughs> I mean, NASCAR is essentially the, is the referee of, of stock car racing in the United States. And so, and so there, there will always be issues that are, arise. The competition is fierce between our competitors. And, and, you know, so yeah, you deal with those issues, but the beauty of our sport is that it, it is, it, it's a family sport. It's a family run sport. We, you know, the France family uh, founded NASCAR uh, in the forties and, and still runs NASCAR today. And, and when times get tough and, and when crises arise, you will not see a group of people bond together faster than the NASCAR garage uh, and the competitors will all rally around each other in support. Uh, and we saw that happen as an industry last year when, when, the, when the pandemic, when the pandemic hit and we had to find out well, how are we going to get back to racing? And so it took a concerted effort by everybody in the industry from the manufacturers to the teams, to the drivers, to the tracks, to the broadcast partners, to their sponsors and, and to, to really, and to, you know, working with the different, you know, the different govern, uh, government entities like the CDC, just to be able to put our sport back on the racetrack in a safe and responsible manner. And so, yeah, you're going to have those, those, those spats over, over uh, inspection in the garage area, but those things pale in comparison to, to the bigger, to the bigger picture. And when, when those big picture uh, crises develop, then the NASCAR community rallies together quickly and, and, and really knows how to pull it all together to, to form a strong bond and a strong product on the racetrack. You mentioned some of the legacy names on the driver's side. There are legacy names on the team ownership side as well. Some of them having mm -hmm. been drivers, but just having been around, not even just NASCAR, but motorsports for a long time. Mm -hmm. However, I'm seeing names like Pitbull, Michael Jordan, Floyd Mayweather getting involved. What does this infusion of celebrity ownership mean for you and NASCAR as a sport? Well, it shows, it shows that NASCAR has a great future. I've been telling folks for, for the last few years, as, as, I've seen, as I've seen the changes develop, is that NASCAR is really on the threshold of a new golden age. And seeing this new participation from an ownership standpoint is just yet another sign of it. And it shows that, you know, NASCAR, NASCAR is growing. NASCAR is vibrant. Uh, NASCAR is inclusive. Uh, you know, look, looking, adding in Michael Jordan, adding in Pitbull, seeing, seeing, seeing these folks come together and, and really all with one common goal. And it's to beat the other the other person on the racetrack. And so, it, it, you know, we, we all like to race. We all, we all want to, uh, uh, we all want to uh, outdo each other uh, week in and week out on the racetrack, but no, it, it, it is a sign. It is a sign that the inclusivity and diversity efforts that we're making as a sport are really uh, starting to pay off. And people are seeing, uh, I think it's really opened us up to a broader audience uh, both uh, from from a fan standpoint, but also from a from a from a sponsorship and a, and a team ownership standpoint. So that is that is uh, it's 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 been it's been great to see. And guess what? We're only getting started. And you are, and there's a lot of change coming. And there was the merger with International Speedway Corp, which didn't get to probably get its full legs going because of COVID. But then beyond that, 
you guys put out a 2021 calendar that doesn't look like a calendar we've seen before. Not only some of the different tracks that you're visiting, but there are road courses, there are rovals, which I'm going to need you to define a roval. You're putting dirt down yes. in the middle of a, a, an asphalt racetrack. You guys are really trying to come at this a different way, it seems. What's the genesis of this kind of revolution to the way we've seen the sport in the past few years? We, we, haven't, had, we haven't had this many venues added to the NASCAR schedule since 1969, the new, the new venues. And so, you know, you know, NASCAR is being bold and, and making these moves to, to really inter, introduce or reintroduce our sport into, into new markets and in new and different ways. I mean, road course racing, when I first started following NASCAR in the 80s, I mean, NASCAR, uh, the road course racing was kind of like an, it, it was, it was an, an oddity. Uh, most of the drivers weren't too proficient at road racing. You'd see, the, you'd see ringers from other, uh, other series come in and, and win races on, on the road courses. And, and the fans weren't really behind it. But I would say within the last 10 years that that mindset has changed as our drivers have really embraced road racing and have gotten better at it. And the competition is so fierce that they're going door handle to door handle on these, on these, on these twisting and turning road courses that uh, it, 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 you know, makes it a contact sport. And, and so when you have contact, you have conflict and you have conflict, you have stories. And when you have good stories, you're going to have a lot to talk about. Uh, and that drives and moves the needle. Uh, and, and so it's been, it's been, it's been fun to watch. So, but the answer to your question, a Roval, a Roval, a Charlotte motor speedway uh, is their road course layout is a Roval. It's run uh, partly on the infield and, Hard on the oval, so they'll they'll go through, uh, they'll go th they'll they'll drive through the infield, come up on the on the racetrack on and run on the oval full speed, and then they'll have to break really fast to go through a chicane, get back up on the oval, come back down through another chicane, go to, uh, go past the start finish line, and so it creates a lot of different action, uh, a lot of different action points around the track, a lot of opportunities for passing, and uh, and contact. And that uh, it creates a lot of mayhem and excitement for our fans. You touched on this a little bit, but I'd like to do a, a deeper dive, if you don't yeah. mind. Mm -hmm. The return of NASCAR after the COVID layoff, um, you guys were among the first and probably the first of the major sports. I know mm -hmm. bull riding and a few others came back a little earlier, but mm -hmm. you, know, you guys came back quick. You guys were back in mid-May and you had to do some aggressive changes. You talked about whittling everything down to being a single day event and adding some midweek races. So there was a lot, it wasn't just let's get back and try to do what we do, but it was, let's do this as smartly as we can. What was the process like from your involvement to keep the PR piece of things informed, but also stay out in front of the stories of getting the messaging out for what, we're going to do and then how it's different once you guys did resume racing. Well, actually, it, it, you know, the, the foundation was started, you know, right away when, uh, when we had to halt racing, uh, you know, our executives got together and they, you know, really sat down and said, we're, we need to find, we need to find a way to get on the racetrack as soon as possible in a safe and responsible manner. And so as, as they're working, as they were working on that, there were also initiatives around uh, iRacing and the, and the, uh, our pro racing invitational 
the iRacing Pro Racing Invitational that, that came together uh, during the pandemic, which allowed us to televise you know, NASCAR competition, but it was virtual. And so you would have like a million people <laughs> tuning in to watch a video game on a Sunday when they would normally tune in to watch a NASCAR race. And in fact, I think you had six of the seven uh, highest esports uh, broadcasts of all time were part of that that the eNASCAR iRacing Pro Invitational series. And so that 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 was part of it. Uh, and so as a communications team, we were telling that story. We were we were making aggressive outreach to local media to to let them know uh, let them know uh, that A, this was happening, and B, we made our drivers available. So we would have Zoom interviews uh, leading into the event and then after the event to help tell that story. Then you also had the pandemic response. And so we had several elements within the NASCAR community coming together, producing PPE and, and other needed supplies to help the help in the effort. In fact, Eric Jacuzzi, one of our engineers at the NASCAR R&D Center, he, he, he got together a team and this is just on their own. He got together a team saying, okay, what can we do with this equipment that we have at the NASCAR Research and Development Center? To help uh, to help in this in, in this fight, and so this uh, we, you know we have these brand new three D printers that we have to help manufacture parts. Guess what? We can put those things to work uh, making face shields uh, for our our essential frontline workers. And so, literally, there was a team of folks as everybody was on lockdown. There was a team of folks that were that were circulating in and out of the NASCAR Research and Development Center making face shields. Uh, this is on their own time. And 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 supplying supplying those face shields to uh, to the hospitals and other first responders uh, across across the Carolinas and then ultimately uh, across the country. So that was that was another thing. So all the time we were staying in contact with media, telling that story. So then when it came time for us to get back on track, uh, we were already talking with we were already talking with our media and. We were then coming up with a plan. Okay, how are we going to do this without media centers being open? Because we we were not we were not allowed to bring our media back into into the infield into the media centers, and so we had to find a way to help the media tell our story in the best way possible without having that access that they're used to having, and so. Uh, we created a virtual media center on our, our media website, nascarmedia.com, which had, you know, all the live timing and scoring. It had the scanner feeds from the, uh, from the, from the competitors uh, during the race. And we had dedicated camera angles that, of the racetrack uh, that were exclusive to media so they, could, so they could have access and they could see things that you might not be able to see on the TV broadcast. And then we were able to open up our press box uh, on the outside of the track to just a handful of media or thinking like five or six media members. And so it became a, you know, a pool report essentially uh, and just so we could have media that had eyes on the racetrack. And so, uh, so we operated under those type of protocols then for much of the remainder of the season. And then finally, by the time we got to our championship race weekend at Phoenix, we were able to, uh, allow a limited number of media to return to the media center, just a handful uh, to come inside. And then we, we would bring in, we brought in the winning driver from each of the championship races 
into the media center for, for the press conference. At the same time, making those press conferences available to Zoom for the media who could not attend, whether for, uh, you know, safety concerns on their part or, you know, other restrictions that they were facing, that they were still able to participate and tell the story of our, our, our championship weekend there at Phoenix. There was a lot of best practices sharing between sport entities uh, throughout the pandemic as everybody tried to figure out how to restart. How much were you able to do that with other leagues? And in particular, other motorsports, do you guys, do you talk regularly to say IndyCar or Formula One and other racing circuits about what it is that you guys are all trying to do? Yeah, I think we talked with every sports organization out there as we were, as we were uh, getting going. But, but the fact that we got, we, we got back first and we got underway first, we had a lot of folks reaching out to us as, as well. And uh, I mean, I, I remember having conversations with, with, with the NBA uh, with with PGA of America uh, and other entities, like right after we 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 flipped the switch and got back on the racetrack at Darlington, asking, okay, what are you guys doing? How you know what what what, what what's working, what doesn't work? Uh, and so that's you know, yeah, and it wasn't just on the media side too. I know um, you know our, our 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 top executives were in conversations with with sports leagues uh, uh, across the country and around the world. And, and how they're managing uh, best practices. So yeah, it was a continual conversation and then working in concert with, with, with the CDC and our local governments uh, to, to, to find a way to, to conduct each event in a safe and responsible manner. I wanna talk a little bit about your path to getting to NASCAR. And it's not unusual for someone to be a journalist and then cross over, uh, as some would probably kiddingly say, to the dark side and do the PR piece of it. Um, but you have a couple unique twists and turns in your path. So I want to start at the most unique. Uh, what was your time like at the sewage facility in Fredericktown, Ohio? Oh, my goodness. I started there. I started there when I was 19. I was, I was, I was married, I was married to my first wife and she was expecting. And so I had dropped out, I had dropped out of college after six months, uh, was a kid on the way and I needed to pay the bills and literally, and it was like 1993. So the economy was literally in the toilet. And so, and so pun intended, <laughs> all puns intended. And so really the only place I could find a job was at the village of Fredertown sewage plant. And so yeah, that was that was something, and then uh, we, you know, we ended up having two kids uh, within uh, within a span of, of about eighteen months, uh, eighteen months apart, and so two little kids, medical bills piling up. You know, you know, kids, you know, they, they get the sniffles and everything else uh, at that age, and so you had a lot of bills. And so I needed I needed to get a second job. I mean, that's you know, I had a good job there at the sewage plant, but I, I need to get a second job. And so I answered a one ad in the newspaper. Kids, look that one up. Look that one up on the Google. But <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 uh, I, I looked at the newspaper. I saw that the Mount Vernon News was hiring for somebody to answer phones in the sports department. And so it's like, you know what? That sounds like a pretty easy second job. I think uh, I think I'll call them up and see if see if it's a possibility. So I was hired on to answer the phones to Mount Vernon News, and I would say maybe a week into the job, the sports editor comes up to me and goes, "Hey, do you know how to write?" 
And I said, well, I, I can start my sentences with a capital and end up with a period. He goes, well, you know, it's high school football season. There's a game Friday night. Do you want to go cover one and see how you do it? It's like, sure. Why not? I had nothing to lose. And so he assigned me to the, the Clear Fork Colts versus the Lexington Minutemen in Belleville, Ohio uh, on that fall evening. And I, I remember coming back, writing my story. It was horribly written. It was probably about a 25-inch story. I'm sure there's full of typos, oh, wow. uh, sentence fragments, fragments. It was probably the worst thing ever written. But I know after experiencing that night and the euphoria of being able to file a story on deadline and putting the paper to bed, that's like, I want to find a way to do this with the rest of my life. And so at that point in time, I was working part-time at the newspaper, full-time at the sewage plant, and then really volunteering to cover anything and everything uh, at the newspaper. And, you know, the Mount Vernon, Ohio is not too far away from Lexington, Ohio, where Mid-Ohio Sports Car Course is located. And so the, uh, then CART, which is the, the, the rival IndyCar series at the time, raced at Mid-Ohio. Then you had Superbikes and other series. And I, I'd like, if there was a race in town, I, I went to the sports editor and said, hey, do you mind if I go cover this? And they said, sure, why not? I'll get you credential. So it got me credentialed. And I would go and write about auto racing on my spare time. Really wasn't getting paid by, uh, pay, paid for it. So uh, I was able to start building up uh, a, a collection of clips, of auto racing clips. But also I was doing a lot of you know, high school football, girls basketball, girls soccer, little league baseball, little league softball, uh, anything and everything that, it, that I, could, I could cover, I covered. And, and I was getting about four hours of sleep a night because I, I, I put everything into it. And so I would get home from the newspaper, maybe 11, 11 o'clock at night, maybe closer to midnight, and I'd have to be at the sewage plant by seven. So I would sleep on the couch, lamp on, television on, so I wouldn't get in too deep of a sleep so I could wake up and get to work the next morning put in a shift at the sewage plant, get off at about 3, 3.30, and then come home, shower off the crap, and then uh, drive into Mount Vernon and go back to work at the newspaper. And I did this for like, I would say about three years. And it took a, it took a physical toll. Uh, and, and so I finally got to the point, so I can't do both. I, I had to pick one or the other. And I, I gave myself about a six month window to to really uh, to make a go of it. The, the internet was just a, it was a burgeoning thing then in, in 1999. I mean, you know, websites, it took like, you know, 10 minutes to load. Email was on, you know, on, a, on a grayscale monitor. And, and, and it's, it's hard to even remember back in those times, but I, I started sending my clips out to, to, to different newspapers and, and, and the websites. Uh, and sure enough, uh, a newspaper, I don't know why, I don't know how, but a newspaper in St. Joseph, Missouri said, you know what, we need a sports writer. You want to come out and work for us? And guess what? We have a NASCAR track that's going to be opening up uh, pretty close by in a couple of years. We'll get to cover that too, in addition to some small college uh, athletics and some high school sports. It's like, okay, sure. Packed up the family. We moved out to Missouri. And uh, it turned out that the publisher of that newspaper, the St. Joseph News Press, David Bradley, he was best friends 
with Stan and Randy Herzog. And Stan and Randy Herzog owned a NASCAR team in the what was then the Bush series. It's now the Xfinity series. And they had this guy driving for them that nobody had heard of, but and they wanted they needed coverage for their guy. And so as a favor to his buddies, uh, Mr. Bradley said, Would you mind calling this guy before and after all of his races and just writing a small story on? It's like, sure, I don't mind. Turned out to be none other than seven-time champion Jimmy Johnson, who just retired full from full-time NASCAR competition last year. And you want to talk about a fortuitous break. I learned so much during that point in time about, and it was really my first chance to cover NASCAR, uh, but I learned so much about the sport, A, by making mistakes, but B, by just talking with Jimmy and talking to his crew chief and talking to his team and the talking to the team owners. I learned so much about that sport that I, it just increased my passion. And so I went to my, I went to my publisher and, and to my sports editor. I was like, do you mind if I start a weekly NASCAR page? NASCAR was growing. Kansas Speedway was getting ready to open up. And so they said, sure, you can, you can start this NASCAR page, this, this, this auto racing page, but you're going to have to not only write for it, you're going to have to edit it and you're going to have to design it. I mean, I had no editing experience. I was horrible at editing my own copy. So I, as I had no editing experience, no design experience. And so I had to learn this stuff on the fly, which was, it was a great teacher because I was able then to pull in the, uh, the graphic designer to, to have him pull me under his wing. And he mentored me in, in page design and graphic design. And then, and then my boss at the time, Scott Dockerman, was able to, uh, he was, you know, he was able to teach me some of the ins and outs of editing. And so I was able to increase my skills by doing. And so started this weekly motorsports page where uh, that actually, I found that my design skills were flourishing at that point in time. And so I, my career is kind of ta uh, taking a, the design path. And so that led to my next job in Lincoln, Nebraska as an assistant sports editor for design at the Lincoln Journal Star. Great place, by the way, if you've never been to Lincoln, you got to go to Lincoln. Great, great food, great football atmosphere, but spent, spent like 14 months in Lincoln and my design, my design skills were really taking off. And I received the greatest recruiting email that I think in the history of recruiting emails, it came from Lynn Hoppus, who was then the executive sports editor of the Orlando Sentinel. And Lynn sent me, sent me a, a one sentence email. I said, dude, would you like to work in Orlando? Period. That was the email. That was his recruiting email. And I got that on a, as I actually got it on a Saturday night as we were waiting for a Husker football game to end uh, as I was working the sports desk at, at the Lincoln Journal Star. And so I responded back, sure. <laughs> and uh, ended up uh, ended up interviewing and and, uh, and a few weeks later uh, work, uh, working at the Orlando Sentinel. And I took that job because A, it's Orlando, bigger paper, but it was also right down the road from Daytona International Speedway, the World Center of Racing. And in that job in Orlando, mm -hmm. you wind up, again, seems commonplace. Now, you, you live stream back to Jimmy Johnson, a Jimmy mm -hmm. Johnson press conference, and that catches the attention of NASCAR. Mm -hmm. So Jimmy Johnson helps you wind up working for NASCAR. Is this right? Absolutely. Yeah, that is, that is correct. So I was, it was actually, it was actually a test session for the Rolex 24. Jimmy Johnson was holding a press conference in the media center and I had this little web camera on top of my laptop. I flipped it around and, and, uh, 
Stu Hodum, who was, uh, who was uh, running nascarmedia.com at the time, came up to me and says, you know, we have a position here at NASCAR. We need some help with this nascarmedia.com website. And uh, would you be interested in applying? It's like, sure. Uh, that was, that was, that's a no brainer. Uh, and so I ended up, I ended up, uh, I ended up applying. I interviewed like, I would say like two or three days before Trevor Bain won the t- 2011 Daytona 500. And by, uh, by May 1st, I was, I was in the Daytona beach office working for the national association of stock car auto racing and, and what is nothing short of a dream job. And you started on the content side before moving into this current communications role. Mm-hmm. I think this is going to be your eighth full season on the communication side. How has that media industry changed in that tenure? Oh my goodness. I mean, it's, you know, you, you know, about Moore's law where they talk about, you know, the technology, you know, changing every two years, then you know, the amount of semiconductors and the semiconductor technology improves every two years. Well, it seems like it's improving every two minutes on the media side. So, I mean, social media was a, it was a thing when I started at NASCAR in 2011, but it wasn't quite the thing it is today. And so social media has changed dramatically in the, in, in that period. Uh, but you know, you know, newspapers were kind of falling away at that point in time, but they were they, they were still hanging around. But websites, uh, websites were just coming on board. The the, you know, you would have a few uh, dedicated motorsports writers who had their own website, but now there there are a, there are a lot of, of of NASCAR dedicated websites that are out there covering the sport. So that's changed the you know going back to social media. You know, you're seeing video and that type of video content and what you can do with video content and not just from a, not just from a, uh, you know, a communication standpoint, but, you know, you know, you see, you see brands and teams and, you know, using it, you know, using, you know, paid, paid social to, to really help build their product. And so there's so many different ways. It's, it's really difficult to keep up, but you know, at the core of it though, is that a good story is a good story. And you just have to learn how to tell a good story across more, more platforms than you ever had 10 years ago. And so it's just a matter of keeping up with the different platforms and applying great storytelling to those platforms and, and just giving people the access and the assets that they need to tell those stories on all those different platforms. You mentioned in your upbringing when you took the job at the sewage facility you had to drop out of college you've gone back what Mm -hmm. has it been like to go back and work on getting a degree at this stage of your career oh my goodness it's it's been it's been eye-opening i i I, there you know i i have my good days and my bad days on the on the bad days i i knock myself in the head saying why didn't i just knuckle down and just take care of this you know you know 20 years ago uh, but, but, but on the good days, it's like, I, I'm learning some interesting stuff and, you know, and it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be, I don't think impact me professionally, but it just personally, I'm just, I'm, I'm being exposed to so many different things, uh, that I wouldn't have even, even considered, uh, you know, 10 years ago, let alone, let alone 20 years ago. And so, uh, it, it, you just get to, you get exposed to different people, uh, different philosophies, different, different paths. And I think ultimately it's going to help me become a better storyteller 
and, uh, and really just be, just to be a more well-rounded person. So I, I've been enjoying the process uh, from start to finish. A few quick hit questions for you before we go. Uh, first of all, do you ever get to drive these tracks? You know, I'll occasionally get to drive, uh, drive a pace car uh, around the track. And so uh, I'll, I've, I've been fortunate to be able to, to take media uh, for, for rides around the racetrack at, at, at several, several of these facilities. That's, that's been a lot of fun. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't go anywhere near as fast as, as, as the greatest drivers in the world, you know, the, the, you know, Daytona international speedway, they're going side by side at nose to tail at more than 200 miles per hour. If I'm reaching hundred miles per hour in a, in a pace car, I'm lucky. So, uh, and I make it a little faster than that, but even so it's a, it's a night and day difference. I, I remember taking a ride with, a uh, uh, former driver, Greg Biffle several years ago at Michigan international speedway. And, we were in a brand new Ford Mustang and I was in the passenger seat and he threw down the hammer and we were just going. And I think we, we were going like 165, 170. We were, we were cooking in a, in a street Mustang. <laughs> he, he turned around and he goes, he goes, now imagine doing this for about three and a half hours and about, you know, 20 to 30 miles per hour faster. Welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> How would you describe the sound when you're in the infield during a race? There is nothing that beats the sensory experience of being in a NASCAR race. It's not just the sound. It, the sound is part of it. It rumbles into your chest. When 40 cars are coming down the straightaway to take the, to take the green flag uh, for the Daytona 500, you feel it in your chest, but you, you feel it, you hear it, you smell it. There's just... I mean, it, is, it overloads the senses from, and, and it makes it makes every hair stand on end. And it's something that keeps me coming back to the racetrack every time because you cannot replicate that anywhere else. There's no other sport. I hey, trust me. I'm a sports fan in general. I've been to some outstanding sporting events. I mean, I you know, just to name a few. Like go do, go to a, go to a Kansas basketball game. At Allen Fieldhouse. I mean, that's that's a that's a very unique experience. Or go experience a Masters at Augusta National. Another just incredible experience. But as great as those atmospheres are for their respective sports, it just doesn't touch the sensory overload that one lap of a NASCAR race will give you in person. And I I enjoy I enjoy that, and I enjoy telling others about it. It's one of the best parts of my job. What advice would you give to someone who is seeking a career in either sports communications and or NASCAR? No, it's all about relationship building. And I mean, as you well know, you know, when you're working with, with media members and with different stakeholders, you're, you're, you know, before you're able to do anything, you need to have a relationship with that person. And so the, having the ability to build relationships uh, is key. And developing that early on is vital. Um, the other thing that I would I would tell them is just just get any experience possible. It doesn't have to be your dream job. Heck, you can volunteer at a media center or at an event. I mean, events are always looking for volunteers. Get your foot in the door. Just just get some sort of experience, and then when you're there, when you have that foot in the door, then you make then you network, you make those connections, and you prove your value. Uh, and it's, it's a, that's a great way 
to get introduced to the sport. There's a person who works for me now. Uh, when I first met her, she was a she was a student at Stetson University, volunteering at the Daytona International Speedway Media Center, and she was a mic runner for the press conferences. So I'd be I'd moderate a press conference, and I'm I'm doing my air traffic control routine, trying to point her to the media member that she needs to take the microphone to, and and now that person is is one of our one of our most talented individuals on our industry communications team who deals with you know, scheduling drivers time and, and, and helping, helping our drivers and our race teams communicate effectively at the sanctioning body, a superstar. And so, uh, and so it's, again, that's, that's a, I, I hold her, I hold her up. Her name is Samantha Zarek. I hold her up as kind of the, the poster child of what to do to, to get involved uh, in sports communications. You just, you just have to be present and then when you're there, network and make those, make those connections. I closed every episode of Credentials Only with the same half dozen questions for everyone. I call it the set pieces. And I start by asking, what are podcasts or newsletters that you are using to stay informed and stay educated? Well, from a NASCAR standpoint, the Dale Jr. Download is, is one of the best podcast, if not the best podcast out there. Dale Earnhardt Jr., uh, Long time, most popular driver in the sport, uh, launched uh, launched his own podcast a couple of years ago, and it's like two hours of appointment listening every week. Uh, he'll usually have a, you know, he'll recap the the previous race weekend, and then he'll interview uh, somebody who's either in the sport or somebody who uh, is retired from the sport. But the, the, all, there's always some fascinating insights. He's such a great podcaster, and it's it's always entertaining from a NASCAR standpoint. But from a just an overall personal standpoint, I enjoy listening to Barry Ritz, Barry Ritholtz and his Masters in Business podcast. I mean, the wide range of executives in economics, finance, and business that he talks to week in and week out. I, you know, I don't understand it all uh, from time to time, particularly when you when you're talking about you know deep financial theory. But boy, the 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 breadth of experience and knowledge that you can learn. Uh, uh, from that podcast is, is, is it's, it's been very influential uh, to my, to my past. So I, I would recommend that if you're interested at all in economics, finance, and then, and then business, it's, it is, it is, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating listen. Who are your most valuable follows the social media posts you don't want to miss? Well, it, it, it starts on the NASCAR side and you may laugh at me, but it's, it's a, it's a guy named NASCAR chasm. And it's, uh, and he is a, he, he's a, he's a fan. He does some freelance work for NASCAR.com, but he is the funniest individual in the history of Twitter. And that is not hyperbole. If you're a NASCAR fan and not following NASCAR chasm, there's something wrong. Uh, the, the, I mean, the wittiness of, of the posts and, and his, just the timing is, is it's comic genius. And it, it always, it always leaves me in stitches. In fact, today our friends at IMSA posted a full field photo on Twitter uh, for the upcoming running of the Rolex 24 this weekend. And uh, uh, he posted something in response saying uh, confirmed, no Bernie Sanders sightings, safe to move on. Boom. <laughs> so it was, it was, it, it, that, that is one of my, that is what I would say. It's my go-to follow on social media. I, I, I try to, I try to 
I, I try to personally dial back from social media as far as, uh, you know, during the election season uh, and, and to, to kind of remove myself from the fray. But if I, if I want to, if I want a good kick out of social media, I go to NASCAR chasm every time. What are a couple of books that you would recommend people check out? Well, if you're, if you're, not familiar with NASCAR and really want to get familiar with the passion that's involved in the sport. Lee Montville's at the altar of speed, the fast life and tragic death of Dale Earnhardt. Uh, I, to, to me is one of the best books uh, written, not only about Dale Earnhardt, but about the sport. I mean, he, yeah, Lee is a great writer and he just captures the, the passion of the fan base uh, of NASCAR and, and, the way he described the fan base's reaction uh, to, to the loss of Dale Earnhardt, which was, was 20 years ago this year. I mean, it is accurate and it really just gives you a good sense of the, a good thumbnail sketch of, of the history of the sport. Also Jay Busby's Earnhardt nation is another, is another good, good read on that subject uh, on a, on a, on a, on a business front. I, one of the favorite books I've read in the last few years is the four by Scott Galloway. It's a very interesting read, and he breaks down uh, really what the secret sauce is for Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, uh, you know, and how each one of those properties has been able to, to focus on an essential, an essential human emotion or drive to really build dominance in their space. And you know, if to do business in the digital age, you really have to understand what makes those companies tick. And he does a really good job uh, of doing that. And then, uh, so that's, the, those are, those are two, those are, those are two great reads. What would you consider your cheat code or your best life hack? Well, I would say being, you know, when I, when I travel to the racetrack week in a week out, I, I wear, I, I wear a black shirt and black pants every day. That's one less thing I have to think about. So when I get up in the morning, pick up the black shirt, put on the black pants, put on my belt, shoes, I'm out the door. I'm ready to go. Don't have to think about it. I can get on to the most important business of the day. And that's telling the story of our sport. That also makes packing a lot easier. So you're winning on a couple fronts there. Without a doubt, I, you know it, when I first when I first started going on the road, I I I, I overpacked and I would stress about packing. Yeah, you know, ask my wife; she would she 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 would always bust my chops. Why are you stressing me out so much about packing? Then it's like you know what, you're right. I'm just going to simplify it, and so you know, put in three or four black shirts, three or four pairs of black pants. Make sure you have the socks and everything else packed, and we'll call it a day. There you go. Yeah. Your favorite sports memory as a kid? It has to be walking into old Cleveland Municipal Stadium with my dad for that first time. I mean, that, that massive monstrosity of a ballpark. It was a toilet, but in Northeast Ohio, it was our toilet. <laughs> we, we certainly, we certainly, loved, but I remember the first time I walked into that stadium and walking through the concourse and then seeing that large field, that large baseball field. I mean, I played little league baseball, but it was like, it was bigger than anything I've ever witnessed. And it was so green. Little, little did I know that they actually had to spray paint that grass frequently in order to keep that green color because, uh, because of the Lake Erie weather was not conducive to growing grass. But I would just remember just being in awe of that, uh, of, of that stadium. 
I don't even remember who the Indians played that night, but it was, uh, it was a, it, it was something that I'll never forget. Just that first time walking through and just seeing that field for the first time. Yeah, I was hooked as a sports fan. Do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? Oh my goodness. Now that's a really interesting question because I used to keep my credentials and I'm sure I have a box of my credentials still up in the attic, but I don't as much anymore, but there is one that I have saved. And that is from, and it actually isn't my credential is actually my wife's credential from the 2012 Rolex 24. We were not married at the time, but she was there working the event uh, for ASAP sports as the, as the, transcriptionist. And my boss that day said, Hey, Matt, we've got this gal coming in to do uh, transcripts for our post-race press conferences. You have one job, keep her happy. And I took his, I took his advice to heart. And uh, sure enough, uh, uh, a few months later we were married and uh, yeah, we we actually getting ready to celebrate that, that nine year anniversary from when we met here coming up in a few short days. Well, congratulations on the anniversary. And Matt, thank you so much for the time. I really enjoyed the conversation and learning more about not only your background, but also what you do with NASCAR. Well, Pete, well, thank you for having me. And uh, thanks for thanks for having this podcast. I mean, the diversity uh, of, of disciplines that you have represented, it's impressive. And I, I look forward to catching up on the back catalog as I, as I commute back and forth to the World Center of Racing. Good luck at Daytona. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care now. Matt's passion for his work and for racing is palpable, and I really appreciate him sharing so much with us on this episode. Thanks to you for checking out this episode. Don't forget to visit credentialsonly.com for show notes with more about what we discussed. And while you're there, drop us your email so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. If you like what you heard, please do us a favor and leave a rating or review wherever you're listening. And don't forget, you can follow us on social media at Credentials Only on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Mike Boucher edits credentials only, which is a Holter Media production.